host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me on this delightful Friday is my good buddy, Sean Shapiro. Sean, what's going on, man? Not much, man. I'm, uh, I was just saying right before we started recording, I was enjoying uh, yesterday being a uh, full day of hockey. As far as I know, it was uh, something we got to do. We got because the game was in Sweden, but I enjoyed the Thursday two o'clock start here for me and being able to watch a game fully without having to juggle watching six or seven at once. And I don't know, just kind of a, a dream of a of a better time in the world when someday the league decides that we can do this more often and it doesn't have to be a game in Europe for us to kind of get a scheduling like that on huh? for people who want to watch a ton of games like you and I. Yeah, I love the matinee element of it. Certainly, it's nice to just have hockey on throughout the day and it helped that it was a very entertaining, high-scoring, fun game as well. Um, I got a lot of com- you know, complaints and comments from people being like, oh, I wish I was actually able to watch this game. Uh, in typical NHL fashion, they made it very difficult to actually access it and enjoy it Yeah, in certain parts of the world, which is very frustrating. Um, but yeah, no, I, I enjoy it. I guess I wonder, you know, other leagues certainly pull it off, right? Baseball does it uh, yep. quite a bit. Uh, you mentioned, you know, European soccer and stuff like it. Th- there's ways to, to make it happen. I wonder uh, here domestically, if you were doing afternoon weekday games like that, how that would affect both viewership and also attendance, but I imagine people would make it work, especially if it became kind of a, a regular thing in our schedules. The, the way to make it happen is, and, you, and there's two partners that you'd have to get on board with it, is because they control everything now, um, is you'd have to get Turner and ESPN on board for it, basically, is what, is what you would need. Um, one of the reasons the NHL schedule is about a week later and will be going forward is because of Turner and ESPN. They feel it's better for their their schedule. Um, one of the reasons that this game, that these these games in Sweden don't really get all the love and play is because ESPN and Turner haven't really been like, ah, that's something we want as part of our, like, they argue over who gets the Winter Classic, who gets the outdoor game, who gets the All-Star game, but this is not one of those things where Either, either ESPN or Turner really pushed for nor nor wanted. So, you'd you'd have to get one of those networks on board. Um, you'd have to kind of get those those one of those big TV partners because they really have way more power than people. I think people realize how much power they have, but it's it's one of those things where you see how they impact playoff schedules, and when it comes playoff time, and they'll be like, "Hey, um, this this is why we have." teams playing in the central time zone starting games at nine o'clock locally um this is it's because of the power of espn and, and national television and turner and everything so we'd have to you'd have to take this would be on the league to get to basically sell espn would have to be the partner of like hey let's get an espn two game at what be, what do you have at two o'clock on thursday like uh, uh two o'clock on thursday well let's let's sell esp let's get this on Let's you'd have to get ESPN. I think would have to be the willing partner on this because Turner obviously is kind of a weird network in general where they're half sports, half entertainment. It's the network where you they're always on in the bar. It's always on a TV in the bar, but it's either the Dark Knight Rises or an NBA or an NHL game. Yeah, well, it sounds like they're um, the the Frozen Frenzy we had a couple weeks ago, right? With every team playing. Uh, yeah. Staggered times was such a success that they will be bringing that back this season. So that's very exciting. Yeah. So I think there's certainly some latitude here to experiment with this stuff. I, I mentioned how 
it helps that it was a very fun game and and obviously um you know the the four nothing lead for the senators then the comeback by the red wings and and the buzzer beater uh with yep. the with the grand slam home run by tim stutzla there was awesome it was funny because i didn't even notice it in real time i was just so captured like captured by stutzla's goal and like the dramatics and theatrics of it and then obviously when you see the replays and stuff you notice that if james reimer didn't just actively avoid the puck it probably would have been a cool play but not a highlight play because yeah. it just hits him and uh in the Discord, which we'll be referencing here throughout the show because we're going to take some questions from it. There was a good conversation going on about it and kind of like the safe selection in terms of like, what, what was he trying to accomplish there, right? And there there was some things yeah. being kicked around about how like, oh, well, you know, if it, the puck gets high to a certain level and, and kudos to some stuff, we're actually waiting for it to come down so he didn't get called for a high stick and get it waved off. Uh, Reimer just lost it and essentially in like scramble mode just tried to like get low to prevent a puck beating him yeah. along the ice. I... I yeah. think it, it looked like a a reaction you or I would have at like flinching at something coming towards you, which I guess we're not used to seeing from goalies who are wearing protective equipment and in particular well, a helmet in this case. But it looked like he was like worried about the puck hitting him and he just ducked to avoid it, forgetting that his job is to actually get in front of it. I know. The, so the, the, the did Reimer duck discourse is pretty big, especially here being in Detroit right now, because there's, uh, there's goalie discourse is always on anyway and it doesn't help in Detroit that and I mean Alex Lyon will play today but there's been there's always there's been a guy right sitting right there where people are like we have another guy who played and we also did for the Florida Panthers last year so it's it's very easy because there is a replacement sitting right there that you don't have to make any other moves to get into the lineup so there's the the Reimer discourse and the Billy Husso discourse is always going to be high in Detroit right now as long as they're carrying three goalies and I'm actually going to slightly defend Reimer for a second here because you you watch the play, and he does. I, I I honestly, he's so lost on the play. So I'm defending him with the backhanded compliment at the same time. He's so lost on the play off the deflection off Gosta Spearstick has no idea where it is. The flinch to me isn't the puck; it's the baseball swing with the stick. And as someone who still poorly attempts to play beer league goalie, and and played. You, you're used to getting hit in the face with a puck. That's normal. You're like, okay, that, that hits me. But it's the baseball swing, and I, I the depth perception, I'm not sure what exactly looked like from Ryber's point of view, how close it looked like Stu slows him. But I think the flinch is more off. He sees the baseball swing coming, and he's reacting to the swing, to, to the stick. And that's a natural, like, your entire life, you're used to, okay, I'll take that puck, I'll take that. But the minute someone swings the stick at you, it's just like uh, in the Dallas game a week ago where Adam Fantilli has the natural flinch of a, of a, of a, of a stick coming at him. And he's, and it's, and, and then uh, it's a stick coming at you, I think, causes a different flinch than a puck. And so I'm going to slightly defend Reimer on the save selection discourse there, where I think it's a natural reaction to that. And then he's trying to get the blocker up. Um, it also, he was completely lost on the play in the first place. So the foundation wasn't even there to make a save in the first place. Great play by Stutzla, but just completely lost even before uh, Stutzla had the chance to to take a swing at it. So yeah. I'm defending the, the I'm defending the end, but not the build up to it. <laughs> that was about as damning of fame praise as you can get. And, yeah. and listen, it wasn't his fault that he got out of the way of the puck. I mean, he had lost on that play way before that. So yes, 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 yes. Yeah, you know it was funny in in watching the broadcast they kept referencing 
you know, they're talking about the blue line and, and, and Shane Goss has played really well and he's been um, quite good this year. But there's a sort of, you mentioned the, the goalies and how they're carrying an extra one. They're also kind of this log jam on the blue line for Detroit. Yeah. And I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I just have to bring this up because I, not enough people are discussing how amazing this subplot is right now where Justin Hall was the odd man out against Senators. He was a healthy scratch, right? Bet365, a reputable awards market, currently has Justin Hall as the 18th most likely player to win the Norris Trophy. What? I mentioned this previously. <laughs> He's listed at 66 to 1, which implies like a 2% chance or whatever. So it's obviously very minuscule. He's got better odds to win it right now than like Philip Ronick and Drew Doughty. Philip Ronick, who's a point of game on this amazing yeah. start to the season for the Canucks on the top air with Quinn Hughes. Drew Doughty, who's second in the league in ice time, has the reputation, of course, but is also the top defender on like a top five team in the league. And I just have to, I mean, this has to be a bit, right? I, I think the, the person setting the line here has to be like a, a jaded Leafs fan who is just trying to to poke and prod because it's there's obviously no basis in reality in it but i just brought it up and i haven't seen anyone else really mention it so until this changes something happens in fact i hope he keeps shooting up the board i hope uh the healthy scratches keep mounting but somehow he jumps into the top 10 here because it would be a hilarious thing but yeah i did the broadcast just kept talking about how like oh the leafs uh the red wings have so much depth on the blue line right and it's like yeah they have they technically have a lot of people who have played the defense position in the NHL before, I wouldn't necessarily, when I think of the Red Wings right now, I don't necessarily think of them as having a deep blue line in the functional sense of having a plethora of good options. Like they have people who play the position or are played to do so, but very few of them can actually string together a simple pass up the ice. And that's been an issue for this Red Wings team for many years now, right? Throughout this entire era where um, there's been the downturn and they've been rebuilding. It's the inability to just get the puck off the ice and break it out cleanly. And once again, I don't think that having this many players necessarily means they have a lot of depth. So I just wanted to, to point out that little distinction there in terms of terminology. Yeah. Well, it's the the thing about the Red Wings defense is it's loaded on quote unquote, it, it's loaded on veteran defensemen. It's like right? people like, you've heard like you've heard their name before. It's like, okay. Yes. Yeah. And and it's the 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 wild thing about the Detroit defense and it's the the space where like you have like I, I am a believer that you it's not a bad thing to carry seven defensemen. I, I I'm actually I'm I'm I don't think it's a bad thing to rotate and figure things out. I, I think that's that's not a bad thing. But the the bigger thing that's just kind of highlights the whole what is the long-term plan for Detroit you wonder and everything like that right with all of this um and it's even more blatant just because of the location of this game you're playing a game in Sweden the future of your blue line allegedly the player you're allegedly building your put your blue around happens to be Swedish and is sitting in Grand Rapids right now not playing in this game because not only do you have Ben Sherratt Justin Hall, uh, Jake Wallman, Olimata, Jeff Petrie, um, and obviously both Cider too. And, and and not only do you have all of them signed for this year, they're all signed for next year too. You've got Sherrod has two more years after this. Hall has two more years after this. Um, I don't think Wallman's a problem at all, but it's just he's one of the older players who's on on the list. Um, 
Mata signed for a year after this. Petrie signed for a year after this. And Gostisbehere, who's your best defenseman in the game yesterday, knowing how Eiserman has handled players, he's probably going to re-sign him anyway. So it, it's just, it's kind of so, looking at the like long-term today versus tomorrow, the fact that they play a game in Sweden without Simon Edvinson is just a pretty blatant reminder of how much they've blocked him playing for Detroit anytime soon with a collection of guys. So you're like, okay, if I had a couple of those guys, I can live with that. But when you're stopping a guy who is in theory a franchise-changing player, as people in the prospecting world claim Medvinson is, and you can agree one way or the other on that, um, you've you've created a problem there. It's it, it's it's you and I, yes, you and I, you and I were messaging during the game yesterday. Like, there's depth. I mean, there's a lot of, but it's what is depth? Well, I mean, Ben Sherrod <laughs> and Jeff Petrie currently lead this team in five on five ice time per game, and yeah. yeah. It hasn't necessarily manifested itself in the results. Well, sure, I was on the ice for a bunch of goals last night or yesterday afternoon. Um, but once he stops having like a 15% on ice shooting percentage or whatever, the results are going to start looking wildly different and it's going to become a really big issue. And it's probably good to get ahead of it rather than waiting for that to happen. But they've kind of boxed themselves in here. And I, I get like Edmondson ended last year with the with the sh- with shoulder yep. surgery, I believe, right? And so, like, yeah. easing him back in, uh, not necessarily... I, I also don't like, just kind of looking at it the other way, I don't like when organizations basically get one of everything and then just hope for the best-case scenario and just presume that all of their young players are going to step in and fill that exact role they've envisioned for them. And then when they don't or they struggle or there's injuries, they're like, oh, well, who could have seen this coming? And it's like, all right, well, you probably should have been better yeah. prepared. So... I get that logic and wanting to have a player, you know, eat meaningful minutes and and get a lot of reps at this age rather than playing a sixth or seventh defenseman role in the NHL. But I just think where the Red Wings are, it would make a lot more sense to just give him that runway. And if he's going to make the mistakes in the meantime, so be it. That's fine. That's going to happen. But I'd rather him make those mistakes than someone like Ben Sherrod or Jeff Petrie at this point, right? And so that's where I uh, that's well, where yeah, because it's that. like you're going to have. Simon Edvinson, if things go according to the Iser plan, right? Simon Edvinson will be part of the payoff. This group of defensemen that you have right now, realistically, you only have two of them on the seven. Like Cider and Wallman are the only two that would, in theory, be part of the payoff. I mean, maybe Paul is uh, maybe all is eighteen time wise, but you're telling me that when Detroit finally turns the quarter to the miraculous parade that has been meticulously planned years in the making on on this defense score, are any of those guys really going to be around to be a part of it? Like, that's what Edv- Edvinson, you're going to need Edvinson to be part of that. So I, I like, I look at the Edvinson handling and I know the surgery and everything like that. And it's just, he is, it's funny seeing, because obviously I covered Jim Nil for such a long time, but Jim Nil came from the Ken Holland, Detroit, over-ripening school of thought, right? Where you let prospects over-ripen. And in Dallas, they've actually kind of changed that philosophy a little bit. I mean, um, there's still some parts of it, but the fact that they what they've done with Y Johnson, what they did with Thomas Harley, they've kind of gone back a little bit from, pushed back a little bit on that. But in Detroit, Iserman has been big on not just over-ripening, it's, it's, it's to an extreme with, with Edvinson, with some of the forwards they have. I mean, it's the type of thing where it's, 
Austin Zarnick, for example, is getting called up before Jonathan Berggren. And I know you can make the argument, oh, this guy's a better fit for how this team plays today or whatever. But in the long run, who's part of your long-term payoff? Well, that's the thing. And, and that's the frustration. It's like, who cares how you're playing right now? That's not the... What's the objective? What are you trying to accomplish with this season? And I understand they've sort of they forced themselves along the path of it mattering because of the contracts they've handed out, but that's the the ceiling for that is just so low compared to what it could potentially be if you kind of chose the alternative, right? So all right, you mentioned Jim Nell there. Let's talk yeah. a little bit about uh our Dallas Stars, who are off to an eleven three and one record this season. Um, mm-hmm. As we mentioned last time, I believe we spoke kind of a, a weird schedule just because they started with so few games and then it's been kind of on and off and in spurts. But I want to talk about Matt Duchesne because he has off to a phenomenal start to the year here. And, and you know, last summer, just thinking back on it, it flew a little bit under the radar, in my opinion, just because of the compressed nature of the window he was available, where it, I mean, it really was less than 24 yeah. hours where the tweet drops that he's being bought out. I believe at the same time Blake Wheeler was in that last window before free agency. And then July 1st, so this is June 30th, July 1st, he signs with the Stars, right? And so there wasn't necessarily this like long courting period or this, um, or the ability for us to like speculate on where he's going to go or how it's going to fit because it just happened, right? Yeah, yeah, there was no media cycle for every single, like there wasn't enough time for all 32 beat writers to go and write there, oh, how Matt Duchesne fits with this team. There was no, there was no, like, that's what happens with most UFAs, right? It's like, oh, how do we feel, if you're not in the Stanley Cup final, how do you feel June if you write about how a UFA fits? And we didn't have that with Duchesne. We certainly didn't. And, you know, the stars have really benefited from it. It's remarkable to think that they're paying him $3 million this year for the one-year deal. And next year, the Predators are going to have him on the books at $5.55 million the year after six point five five million in terms of cap holds those next two seasons. And he's made a real difference for this team, right? And and we got a question in a Discord here from Robu that said, So uh Matt Duchesne, as a numbers watcher who is rarely able to actually watch the games, what makes him so good this year? And certainly if you just look at the any metrics really, whether it's counting stats offensively or underlying five one five metrics they're all through the roof and and he's performed remarkably well for this team. I think there was a lot of reason for optimism when they made the move stylistically, right? And what he could provide for this team, essentially stepping in as a one-for-one replacement for what Max Domi gave them down the stretch last year after they acquired him. But even if you were high on the move, I think what we've seen, particularly the past, what, four or five games from him has exceeded even the wildest optimism so far. So what are we seeing from Matt Duchesne and kind of why is it all coming together for for him and the Stars here so far early in this union? Yeah, for me, I mean, I kind of, it's something that I expected him to fit well and he's been playing with, he's been really, he's been playing with Sagan really well and he's actually helped kind of unlock some of the stuff that Mason Marchman really struggled with last year. Um, the thing coming in that we knew would fit was Duchesne's such a good puck protector in transition and um, that's kind of something we knew would 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 fit well. It's something that that's kind of someone Marchment needed a little bit more of to play with. Um, obviously, Duchesne, you say Duchesne replaced Domi, but Domi and Marchment's timeline are very weird last year because of all the injuries. So it's, it's someone like Marchment kind of needed to play with 
Well, more so, more so bringing someone in yeah. to help get Tyler Sagan going. I mean, everyone. Yes. Yeah. Regard, yeah. Right? Yeah. No, and that's and that's no, and that's fair. And and it, it's someone where Duchesne's puck protection in transition through the neutral zone. That's something we even saw last year in Nashville. I remember my Substack. I went through and looked at some of the clips from some of the things he could have brought in from Nashville. And he's still doing that. The thing he's doing more than I remember seeing, and this would have to you'd have to ask someone in Nashville this or someone who covered him before to see if he's doing. I don't recall him being as active in buying time for others low in the zone. That that's kind of been a and and I'm not sure whether that is a change on something that he's brought back into his game that maybe I missed in the past, and that could be the case, or it's something that is simply because of he looks at the team in this role and being third technically on a line chart when it's listed and things like that. It's maybe it's more of a mentality thing where it's like, okay, we're a line that has to establish more zone time. And like one of the biggest differences between the stars in Vegas, like people, when we watching stars in Vegas last year, I had all stars fans who would ask me like, Oh, why can't the stars be like Vegas? Because Vegas would kill teams. They would, they would, they would, they would uh, suffocate teams. They would control the zone and the stars are a, when it comes to puck protection, they don't suffocate teams. They don't hold the puck in the zone for a very long time. And they don't really have players that like to do that. Like even even Jamie Benn is more of, he does has some puck protection elements. He's not, a, I'm going to hold it down and we're going to get the cycle going for 35 minutes, for 35, 35 seconds here. Duchesne somehow has added that element to a Dallas line where his combination with Sagan has really freed Sagan up to be a little more free and open to do things in the offensive zone and have time. I don't think Sagan's had in years. And that's that's kind of how I look at Duchesne on where it's that the, the, the points and everything like that, that's great. But I really look at, you watch him shift to shift. And you're like, okay, he is allowing the, uh, a star's line to play with a different style than the other ones. And like the Johnston line, the Hintz line, they're going to score off the rush. They're going to score in transition. The Duchesne line can score in transition, but all of a sudden it it becomes a different element within a game that I think is harder to prepare for now with how the Stars play as a whole. And like give Duchesne credit for what he's doing down low because I didn't either I forgot about it because he didn't do it enough in Nashville or it's something he's added. I'm not sure which. It's a great question. I hope to ask him someday soon. But it's that's kind of how I look at Duchesne on that. Yeah, and he's fit in really well beyond the rush stuff. Kind of what you're what you're tapping into there in terms of. The Stars are always a team, in my opinion, that is going to be fine in volume, but is is trying to is very um, direct or um, kind of has a game plan for where they want to get the puck to and where they want to attack from, right? And and so mm-hmm. you mentioned like especially for the top line, you get that first wave off the rush, right? Generally, Rupe Hins doing Rupe Hins things. If that doesn't work out, you get the puck back, you work it up to the point. You stack up in front of the net, you shoot from the point, you try to tip it, and then you kind of do that all over again. And and there's that that cycle. Now when you have Duchesne playing the way he's playing, even I think Wyatt Johnston obviously is a different player type, but you look at like how much he's been able to create off the cycle, for example, this season yep. where um, he's got a bunch of chances in that regard and how he's able to, despite not being the biggest guy, he's always seemingly in high energy areas in front of the net and is always available as an option and gets a ton of chances doing so, it gives them more players and more avenues or outlets, I guess, 
to get into that middle of the ice and do what they would ideally like to do. What ideally most teams would like to do, but the stars seem to do it better than most. And kind of that's part of what makes them successful. And so it's interesting that Duchesne has a very starsy uh, shot profile this season in terms of like with him on the ice, they're only controlling 49.7% of the shots. So they're slightly uh, below water. 69.1% of the high nature chances, which is very nice. 65% expected goal share. And obviously with him, Sagan and Marshman on the ice, they're up nine to two and have like a 67% expected goal share. And that's obviously outrageous. I'm not expecting it to be yeah. hovering close to the 70% mark, but the fact that the actual quantity isn't that high, but the quality exceeds that and is very by design, kind of they're trying to accomplish a certain thing is very encouraging. And I think part of why he fits so well with like the infrastructure of what they're trying to accomplish. Well, for sure. And it's, it's the other thing too is there's a human expectation element too, right? And I think it's something where it took Sagan, you had to Shane and Sagan, and they kind of both fit in that realm of when you do the, if you use your broadcaster voice and you're selling the game coming to town, right? The Dallas Stars come to town. You're like, oh, Jason Robertson, Rope Hintz, Miro Hishkin, and Jay Gottinger. Maybe you talk about Joe Bills. Tyler Sagan and Matt Duchesne aren't in the top five names listed anymore. And I think that's a space where they're both kind of in that career arc where I think Sagan has had that before and it's kind of in, in coming off the years of kind of dealing with some injury stuff. It's finally healthy. Hey, that's a big one. But I think Duchesne, there's a real nice kind of soft landing of, it reminds me of, uh, I remember talking to Jason Spezza in the, before he kind of fell off, before he kind of fell off in his last couple of years in Dallas. I remember talking to him about kind of the luxury of playing in Dallas where he was able to make mistakes in Dallas that got missed or even perceived mistakes in Dallas that got missed that he didn't have um, when he was playing in Ottawa. Um, and the kind of the ability to you can be going through a cold stretch in Dallas, and I guess Deshane probably had could have had this in Nashville too. But when you're making the big money, uh, there's the ability to kind of go through a cold stretch and not have every single person, not have your waiter ask you about it. But that that's one of those things that like, and I think Duchesne is really enjoying that and adding added in the team hierarchy where he's only a three million dollar guy. He doesn't have to be. He doesn't have to be an eight million dollar man. He can be a three million dollar guy and. It's. I'm sure that's incredibly freeing. It Plus, is. It's just, yeah. You know, it, it is both in terms of pay structure and also in terms of, I guess, lineup a lot. But now I will say Jason Robertson's the only forward currently on the Stars that's playing more than him. Mm-hmm. And he leads the team with five on five points. And so part of that, I'm sure, is they're playing so well that they're just getting him out there as much as possible, right? And I imagine as the season goes along, I wouldn't necessarily expect him to be second on the team in forward usage in that regard. But yeah, certainly while it's working, um, squeeze the most that you can out of it. And and that's been a great fit. And, and you know, the rush element still is there where he's gotten, I think, at least three or four now that I've counted breakaways or, or kind of two-on-ones that he was able to create. Uh, he had that just scintillating rush the other night in their most recent game against the Coyotes where yeah. it was like very vintage. He's like puts on a series of moves and, and gets to the net and doesn't wind up scoring, but it was a very unique type of play that that we've become accustomed to from him, especially in his prime. And so there's that. Uh, I think he leads the team with 33 passes into the slot, uh, which kind of feeds into that high danger statistic that I mentioned earlier. So yeah, it's all it's all working for them. Now, you know, 
they're shooting 16% with him on the ice and have a 943 save percentage. So things are looking really good. And I imagine the goal share itself will probably come down a little bit as the season goes along. But this is all just like kind of found money at this point, right? And so I guess it's a uh, it's another win for our pal Jim Nil here, being able to uh, mm-hmm. to go out and add a guy like this who fits in so so beautifully for what they're trying to do. And uh, yeah, I guess it, it helps when you have that when you have all those other like fundamental pieces already in place, it makes it a lot easier to go out shopping in, in this bin and bring guys in and get that out of them as opposed to if you had to bring in Matt Duchesne as an $8 million player or whatever and ask him to play a top line role all of a sudden. That's an t- entirely, entirely different landscape for everyone involved. Jim Nill loves shopping off of bought out players more than anyone. Like any anytime a player gets bought out... Like if you want to talk about odds makers, whoever's putting Justin Hall at 16th best to win the the Norris or whatever, like hey, it's only 18th. Let's not get too crazy. 18th. Yes. <laughs> like if any any player that gets bought out, I could immediately give you top five odds that Dallas will sign a bought out player. Jim Jim, I mean, across the Central, the Stars have between the Suter deal and between to shade right now. Every every divisional game for Dallas, it almost feels like they're playing against someone. They're playing against a team who's helping pay, keeping their salary down this year. So. Uh, Jim knows like me. He's just going to the going to the thrift shop, getting some uh, some vintage finds, uh, some used cool fleeces and and sports yeah. t shirts. It's uh, you know I can I can relate to that. I, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's smart. It's uh, very crafty by Jim. Um, all right, John, let's take our break here, uh, and then we come back. I do want to talk about one more stars thing, and then we're gonna move on and, and cover some other stuff around the league. Uh, first, let's do our break. You're listening to the Hockeypedia cast streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network. All right, we're back here in the Hockeypedia cast with Sean Shapiro. Sean, while we're on the topic of the Dallas Stars, I wanted to quickly talk about Wyatt Johnston as well. You wrote about him recently, and, and we've spoken quite a bit about him uh, over the past calendar year or so on the show, but really strong week from him. You know, started it with, I believe, that game in in Winnipeg where he sort of took yeah. it over, and in particular, you know, tying it into the chain conversation, those two have, have found a really nice wavelength to both operate on together on that second unit power play, which was a big weakness for this team last year where their first unit was just so strong, and that's great, but then part of it was like you're bringing Ryan Suter out there on the second unit, and it was just like, it was basically a black hole offensively. All of a sudden now, it's just giving them different wrinkles and different options and ways to to beat you. And Johnston, you know, this isn't new because even as a teenage rookie last year, I thought his game was so polished and refined and just like ready-made for the league, but you're seeing him take that to an even higher level this year. And every time I watch him, I'm just I'm just blown away. He feels like the he never makes a mistake. He's always in the right spot. And it's kind of difficult to like I couldn't even really I don't know if I could do a one of those full deep dives with Daryl Belfry where we watch all of his shifts and talk about it because I'm sure Daryl could uh could articulate it better than I could, but I, I don't even know if I can necessarily pinpoint like specific things. It's like a it's like a combination of doing seven things really well in a subtle way that add up to the greater whole here with Wyatt Johnson. And he just strings together so many of those sequences over the course of a game. Yeah. It's funny. And I, as you said, I wrote about, I wrote a piece about him this week and um, it's kind of one of those looking at things. It's you talk about the stars and everyone knows the, it's hard to why I'm sure, I don't know if they, they've gone a broadcast 
this in his career where someone hasn't brought up that he lives with Joe Pavelski. Like that's 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 kind of one of those stories that will follow him and be around him forever. It's just like Crosby lived with Lemieux, like Johnson lived with Pavelski. Like, but it's how he ended up in Dallas is kind of one of those interesting stories too because it was this is the stuff he did at the U eighteen Worlds when they were in twenty twenty one. And he, this is the kind of things that the stars, the reason they picked him in the first round. Um, and no one saw Johnston play during the 2020-21 season. The OHL didn't play because of COVID. Um, so his only games were during were the uh, seven or eight games at the under-18 Worlds, which ironically enough, the stars in, in Texas had lax COVID restrictions. So they stepped up and they were able to host the event in their own practice facility Um and Jim Nill and all of his scouts and the stars. And I, I remember spending a couple of days at that tournament. The stars obviously had more than anyone else watching that tournament. And obviously Shane Wright and Connor Bedard. And those were the big names. But Wyatt Johnson was the third line center for Team Canada who was stringing things together left to right. And now lo and behold, three years later, he's doing it for the NHL team. And it's, it's, it's interesting looking at that. that's why the stars took him in the first round. It's one of the reasons he didn't have those gaudy numbers in his draft year. That's why he wasn't a top, like, like he had the gaudy numbers the next year in Windsor after he had been drafted. Um, that's why, but it's those little things, just stringing everything together. And it's kind of what the star's plan has been with him from the beginning since kind of the first time they saw him play as a 17 or seven, 17 year old. And it's, um, as you said, our, our, your buddy, uh, Elfrey can probably put together a better terminology for us, but it for me watching him play, it's it's very it's like a forward version of a Greek defenseman where you're like, there's no mistakes. He controls flow of the game. And I can't really describe it great. Just please watch him play. Yeah, I mean, thirty-eight goal pace, seventy-one point pace. He's got thirty-one scoring chances this season, according to Sport Logic, fourteen off the rush, seventeen via the cycle, which I referenced earlier. So nice kind of versatility in that regard and, and feeds into exactly like much like Duchesne, what the stars are trying to accomplish offensively. And yeah, it just, he lives in those high danger areas. He's one of those players that regardless of how well he's covered, he's always kind of open. You can't really throw him a bad pass because even if there's someone on him, he'll find a way at the last second, get open, receive the puck and get a shot off on net. And so it's been really fun. To, to watch him yet again this year and, and the sky the limit certainly for him I think with even with you know better usage where he's got a nice connection with Ben and, and Dodonov but playing that second you know power play and stuff like for him to be producing at this level while still not necessarily um, having like a full-time completely just unchained scoring role like it's still somewhat mitigated by that is is remarkable and so um Everyone should be really excited about him, and I wanted to shout out him out here as well. Yeah. And in his long term, in his long term, like you talk about, like his long term projection too. At some point, and you and I have talked about Joe Podolsky. At some point, Father Time will eventually call Joe Podolsky's name. It won't. It'll probably still be like a decade from now, but at some point, it will happen, and someone will have to play with Robertson and Hints. And you talk about a a you talk about just a long term spot where you think about him playing with those guys and how his game continues to evolve and mesh. You think about where these counting numbers where it could be for Johnson in a couple years and you're like, that could be something to watch. I thought that 
That's a good point. I didn't think that's where you're taking that. I thought you were going to say at some point you figure Joel Pavelski will be living at Y Johnson's house. <laughs> that's the, the rite of passage. It's, it's, the, I, that's uh, what I thought yeah, you were yeah, yeah. It's, a, <laughs> it's the, it's, it's the, uh, that's the unwritten agreement where Pavelski just has told Y you'll always have keys, but little does he know the first time Y buys a house, Joe's going to be like, all right, I get keys too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At some point the shoe will be on the other foot. You have to take care of me. Um, okay. Anything else on on why Johnson and the Stars, or you want to move on to a uh, to three on three overtime conversation? Yeah, let's chat three on three. All right, so this was a big. I guess it was this week, right? It's it's uh, times yeah. all kind of uh, yeah, moving together here, but it was Monday or Tuesday, right? Whatever it was. Oh, it feels like a lifetime ago now. But yeah. yes, um, haven't really spoken about it much on the show yet this week. So let's get into it here. So the conversation of of potential changes and kind of tinkering with the rules in overtime to try to make three-on-three overtime great again, right? To uh, to bring it back to its peak sort of uh, unfiltered form from the early stages back in 2015-16 where no one really knew how to stop it or devise game plans to slow stuff down. So teams were just going full blast and trading chances and we were getting quick finishes and stuff. And I think if you watch the right, like this, not necessarily catch-all in terms of I think some teams still play it in a fun way, but for the most part, I think coaches as we would have expected have found a workaround if they feel like they're at a talent deficit against their opponent or um you know they might be particularly good in the shootout let's say or they're just kind of trying to string the game along and not necessarily lose it early in in overtime and try to get it to a shootout there's very easy ways to do so right just kind of working that possession game looping back not necessarily trying to even probe an attack. You half-heartedly go, doesn't work out. All right, you bring it back, change. Let's do it all over again. All of a sudden, next thing you look up and 90 seconds went off the board. And so the league is, is I think, smart to try to change that because three-on-three overtime is really fun in theory and people love it. It hasn't necessarily been that recently. So I don't know how you feel about this and kind of what changes you would like to see instituted, but I do think it makes sense because if you're still picturing three on three as that thing it once used to be, it not it isn't necessarily that anymore. So like three on three overtime is it's like the extreme sport of like skydiving. So it's like it used to be first came into the league and I'm not sure what they actually call that, but there's that those stunts that people sometimes do where like they skydive without a parachute and there's like a big net on the ground and they just have and, they, and you have to hit that net. Like and that's what three on three overtime used to be like, okay. It's skydiving without a parachute. You better hit the net. Otherwise, disaster is going to be disastrous because it's going to be going the other way. Or and, and now, basically, it's like all of a sudden, this skydiving competition without a parachute, all of a sudden, you got coaches who've stepped on the plane and just start handing guys parachutes. Like, that's that's pretty much what happened to three-on-three overtime. And I... It, it's it, weird. Cause it's like, I don't like it. I don't like watching the circle back. Um, I know there's been... People have floated the idea of doing kind of that half court rule and everything like that. And I, I don't know if you watched any of that three on three league in the summer that that's played the three ice league. And I've watched a couple of those games here and there and they have that half court three on three rule. And I don't know if that's the fix because it doesn't that three on three, the, the half court rule, it doesn't create better quality chances. It just creates an additional shot and it, it actually leads to more whistles almost because sometimes teams will just start getting and now those are that the three ice league is nowhere near the quality of NHL players so maybe there's a different modifying scale with with the top players in the world but 
in that league, there's too many times where it's like, all right, this is just a bad, it just leads to a low danger shot because it's better to get a shot on net than turn the puck over. And it leads to more whistles. So I don't know if the, like, the half ice rule is one I'd love to see, like, tested by, like, the AHL. Like, it's one I'd love to see it tested by, by higher, by higher talent players. I also, I also wonder if you can even change, find a in-game rule change that coaches won't adjust to. Like, I, I, at the end of the day, for me, the biggest way I think you change coach mentality is you have to change something that's completely out of their control, and that's the, the point system. Like, if all of a sudden, because coach's job is, is to bank points. Coaches aren't, the job isn't to win games, the job is to bank points, because points is how you get into playoffs. So it's the the classic cross-conference game. It's 2-2 game. It could be really exciting. At that point, minute 55, if the Canucks are playing the Hurricanes, they're both thrilled if that game goes to overtime. They both got a point. And um, I think it goes back to kind of more of changing the things outside their control. If you were to, let's just have like, like I would be all more abolishing the shootout and just ending the game at a tie. Like I think that would actually help fix overtime. Because all of a sudden it would be like, oh, well, there's no point available if you don't win in this overtime. And going even further of, hey, let's not even get a, you're, there's, like, I would I would be all aboard for, you can get me back on track in a second here. I think every game should be worth three points. You yeah. win in regulation, you win in regulation, you get three points. You win in shoot, overtime, you get two points. If neither team wins, you each get one point. So, I, what about the, the shot clock i guess just thinking about it that probably wouldn't I, I like the idea of it but in terms of execution it probably would feed into what you're saying which is how do you enforce that it would probably just result in more stoppages and face-offs right it's like because what yeah. happens if you don't if the shot clock runs out and you get a violation you don't get a shot off that means yeah. you, you stop the play right and so that's not what we yeah. want we want to keep this as free-flowing and moving forward as yeah. we can. it's not, it's also like because the shot clock, here, here's the scenario in my head that plays out of the shot clock. The shot clock would be you would get a team, there would be a buildup, like you'd, you'd get a rush, you'd get a two-on-one, and there would be uh, a guy, like, and you would have a two-on-one, it'd be a great, great chance for a two-on-one, and because there's, because the, the guy, the defender has looked up at the shot clock and saw there's only one second left on the shot clock, he just completely collapses to take the pass away, goalie is square, it's an easier defense to play. I think the shot clock gives actually the defensive team another tool. Yeah, you're probably right because you're just playing to literally run the clock out as opposed to trying to. Yeah, yeah, you're just, you're just, you're just. It's just like how you can, like how if within in, in a basketball game, if the shot clock's down to two seconds or whatever, you know the team has to shoot. You can be the the defense is at an advantage at that point. I think the shot clock gives defense more of an advantage to stifle things more. Yeah, Dom had this in a recent piece of The Athletic where he, shots have gone down, shots per hour, and throughout the overtime have gone down from 74 per hour to 66 this season from last year, and goals have dipped down to 10.8 per hour, which is like about two fewer uh, for every 60 minutes of throughout the overtime than we were previously getting last year. And so I think that kind of quantifies what we're talking about here and I think why you want to experiment with stuff I'm willing to embrace anything because honestly as much as I love three on three overtime it's not really hockey like it's not a proxy for anything else that happens over the course of a game 
And so yep. you can't really draw the line here and start to get sanctimonious about like, oh, well, this is going to be too gimmicky. It's like, it's three on three overtime and we're playing it for a short period of time. Like anything is on the table in my opinion. And we probably want to experiment with some of this stuff in the AHL before you actually bring it out into meaningful NHL games. But I'm all for it. And I think I think the league needs to do something because it's gotten a bit too easy to slow it down. And I remember, like, you still get one of these games every once in a while where the teams are just trading back and forth chances and, and it almost, like, draws you back in and you just want so much more of it. I wonder if the solution would be you just extend it maybe like seven minutes, eight minutes, 10 minutes. And if you don't win in the overtime, you you lose. Because I, I, what we need to do here, I think the, the best possible incentivization is you hit the nail on the head to get to the coaches. It's not to get to the players, right? Yeah. It's not to change the yeah. way the game is played. It's to, to force tactics to be more aggressive. And so in this case, if you incentivize teams and force their hand into extreme measures to try to win... I think that's going to lead to the desired effect of what we're looking to accomplish with all these little tinkering things that either have flaws of their own or won't actually accomplish what we're striving for. I have a dumb idea just now. Literally just came into my head and coaches will be able to exploit it. But here's an idea. We keep the shootout, but you get the amount of shots in the shootout that you had in three on three. So if you go and you don't score, you got to shoot a team 10 nothing. In a shootout, and in, in, in three on three overtime, but don't score. You get ten shots in the shootout, and they get zero. No one wins in the shootout; it's still a tie. Let's. I know. I know. Coaches will already figure out a way to exploit it. But yeah, everyone's going to start playing like the Carolina Hurricanes. We don't want that. Yeah, I don't need teams spamming low percentage shots to try to get more shootout attempts down the road. I, I think. I think honestly, like I think the point structure and how you get rewarded based on how the game ends needs to change. Because that's the only thing that's going to fundamentally force teams to try harder and be more aggressive about finishing it, right? It's like, and and I think five minutes is too short if you're doing that. But if you if you stretch it out a bit further, all of a sudden, I think like we know that the longer it goes in that regard, the more likely you're going to have a finish. And and we need some sort of finish. I don't I don't like the tie. I like I like having some sort of resolution. Not even for like oh you got to go home and you know who won or lost. But I just like I need there to be a reason for teams to try to differentiate themselves and just like a bunch of a bunch of ties and a bunch of teams just getting one point and kicking the ball down the road in terms of the standings where it just constantly stagnates and stays the same is not it. I think getting higher, more of like variability and fluctuations in terms of big point outputs for games is probably the way that you go about it. So I don't know what the right uh, formula or recipe is in terms of the actual minutes and point totals and everything, but I think that's probably more likely now far too exotic for the NHL. I, I, I'm not expecting that by any means. It'll probably be more uh, more half measures as we've seen speculated, but um, but it'd be fun to think about. Well, I mean, if we if, if the NHL took our ideas, we would have, we would now, we would now know it would be Philip Peronik in the All-Star game shooting against uh, whoever's, uh, whoever's last in league save percentage. So our, our ideas are sometimes too extreme anyway. No. Well, that's one of our better ideas. So Yeah, that is one of our better ideas. Yes. Incorporated. Um, all right, Sean, we're going to get out of here. I'm going to let you go. Let you plug some stuff here on the way out. Um, either tell the listeners about either stuff that you've been putting out yeah. recently or upcoming stories that they can keep an eye out for. Yeah. Um, a couple of friends. The, the first off, the 
uh, for over our, our stop over AP ringside, some fun stuff there lately. Um, some more stuff coming there this week. And I drove up to uh, Saginaw earlier this week with the NHL, basically all moving to Sweden in the Michigan area. And uh, obviously they got a couple. So if you're in the, in the prospecting world, I went and did some human stories that are coming out soon here on uh, Zane Pareka, Michael Misa that are coming out soon on over at EP ringside. Um, and then uh, I'm actually, the other thing I'm looking forward to coming up as well, just um, schedule works out pretty well of next week, kind of nice little matinee or not matinee, um, deep night before Thanksgiving, Columbus and Chicago play. And then the week after, going to get JD, our pal JD, to fund a trip to Denver for me. So to go watch Leo Carlson play. So nice kind of looking, kind of looking at where we are six, seven months after they've been drafted on kind of one, two, and three and see where and everything is going and kind of getting to see all those guys be kind of a fun thing. And then, of course, uh, you like the Stars conversation, like the Red Wings conversation, do a lot of that stuff over at the Substack too. Awesome, man. Well, looking forward to all of that. Uh, we referenced the the Discord in today's chat, right? We took that question, the Matt Duchesne one, talked about the uh, the Reimer stuff. You're in there. I'm in there. Yep. Uh, a bunch of other people who regularly appear on the show are in there. A lot of listeners are in there as well. It's it's, uh, it's percolating. It's humming. It's fun. There's a lot of good conversation in there. Uh, we're going to be using it for future mailbags and topic ideas and stuff like that and soliciting uh, questions there. So if you're not in there yet, uh, the link is in the show notes. I highly recommend that you can join the conversation or you can just lurk and just see what people are saying. But I uh, just still feel like you're part of the community, whatever your, uh, your cup of tea is. And we're going to keep that thing growing, hopefully. And so, yeah, looking forward to that. Uh, Sean, this is a blast. I'm going to let you go here and we're going to reconvene uh, with you shortly, I'm sure. Thank you for listening to us. And we'll be back with plenty more of the Hockey PDO cast here on the Sportsnet Radio Network.